Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. Thanks, Dan. In our last two episodes, we listened to a sermon I preached last year that is still causing positive and negative reactions. It was a message that challenged the audience to see the glory that Christ possesses. It was a wake-up call to both saint and sinner. To the saint, it was a reminder that the true source of the Christian life for growth, comfort, and the power to live the Christian life is in Christ, mainly in seeing the Lord Jesus' glory. To the sinner, it was a proclamation that salvation is not based upon attendance to worship services or praying a sinner's prayer or any other religious activity. No, instead, it's a supernatural act of God, revealing Christ to the Spirit, transforming the desires and the affections of the heart. Well, the reactions to the sermon were polar extremes. There was nothing in between. Some said it was the greatest sermon they had heard, while others thought it was most detestable. As I said two weeks ago, I know it wasn't the greatest sermon preached. It wasn't even close. But I also know it wasn't the worst sermon either. So what I want to explore today with you is an extremely important question. Why did the message get such extreme reactions? The question is important because it indicates the view of preaching in today's culture. The question reveals just how low preaching has sunk in our generation. Preaching has come under severe attack from without the church and, sadly, my friend, within the church. It seems every generation must contend not just for the faith once delivered to the saints, but also for the integrity and purity of preaching. Preaching is the main work of the church, and if the enemy can dilute the proclamation of God's Word, he can kill the church's fruitfulness. The Bible tells us that Jesus began his ministry preaching. Quote, from the time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. When the Lord sent the twelve out on their first solo ministry tour, he commanded them. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. In Mark chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus said preaching was his purpose. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Well, I could continue to recite verse after verse that tells us that preaching is the church's primary calling, but let me quote one more. Before our Lord left this world, he commanded his apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Even though it is one of the essential tasks of the Christian church, it seems that preaching has become weak and, in many pulpits, non-existent. There are many contributive reasons for this, but let me discuss with you just a few. 
The first is that we wrongly think that if we have any chance of reaching the masses of secularists who are in the majority, we have to appeal to their desire for happiness. The problem is not in addressing the subject of happiness, no. The problem is using entertainment to create happiness. When we think we will attract the unbeliever to our message using amusement, hilarity, and showbiz, well, this reveals that we've lost the understanding of man's true condition and jeopardy. Humanity's problem of happiness is not because people have nothing to cheer them. On the contrary, we have more things than any previous generation to bring pleasure and temporal satisfaction. The problem of happiness is a problem of holiness. Man was made to be holy, and it's in being holy people discover happiness. God warned man. He gave specific commands to protect humanity from any and all things that would bring unhappiness. Sin has its own built-in judgment, sir. It robs man of true joy by promising happiness that it cannot give. For example, God commanded that men and women be monogamous and devoted to one spouse. In obeying this command, a man and wife would be free of the joy-robbing sorrows of sexual immorality. They would not experience sexually transmitted diseases. They would be spared the heartbreak of divorce. Their children would be protected from the violence of a broken home. Every moral command God has given us is not to ruin our happiness, but to ensure it. True happiness comes from knowing God and following His pleasure-filled ways. But man chose not to obey God, and from that moment, paradise was lost, and with it, a joy-packed environment. In its place, a world of woe. A world reeling in misery and unhappiness, chasing anything that tempts with a fleeting moment of ecstasy. One chance to drink in some elixir of merriment that will dull the pain. A man or a woman will give their soul. We truly do not understand man's plight. He's become a slave to the quest for peace. Sin has made him mad, and he flitters away his life for a stupor of delight. He not only does not believe that he could have temporal delights, but eternal joys, pleasures forevermore, is how David put it in Psalm 1611, you will show me the path of life. We ask the psalmist, what is that path of life? And he answers, in your presence, the presence of God, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Again, I say we really don't comprehend the problem of humanity. Man's problem is not that he's on a nonstop merry-go-round of seeking happiness and he just can't get off. Oh, no, his problem is grimmer than that. He really doesn't want to get off. And even worse, he has no desire whatsoever for the one thing that will bring him true contentment, and that is holiness. Man's sinful condition is much worse than most believe. Every unbeliever is locked within a prison of it, their own essence. 
It's nonsense to think any person can act long-term contrary to the nature that dictates behavior. You can no more expect someone's dog to sit at the table and eat with their owner and as the owner with a knife and a fork. It's just not in the nature of a dog to do so. The Bible tells us that each person born into this world is under the power of sin, and sin rules in human nature. It's in our DNA. We love sin, and therefore it motivates us. We do as it stimulates us. In Romans 7, 5, the Apostle Paul says, For when we were in the flesh, meaning before we became a Christian, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members, that is, our body, to bear fruit to death. Within each of us, there are these sinful passions that work to manipulate our will. And what is interesting is that we don't mind it at all. We're creatures of our nature, and our nature loves the sin we produce. Our very humanness is ruined to its foundation by sin. It reigns throughout the person who is trapped in its grip. You cannot escape from this state, and the truth is the sinner doesn't want to escape. They're dead in sin. That is their state, the only one they know, and to it they are devoted. Paul doesn't say they are sick in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. No, he says they're dead. You're not wounded nor hurt. You were dead. Your every desire that filled and moved your heart was contrary to God. Therefore, for the unbeliever to become a believer, he or she needs more than just instruction. They need more than a religious environment, and they certainly need more than entering a church service. They need the miraculous intervention of God. The sinner requires what the Bible calls the new birth or regeneration. Now, what is regeneration? It is the effect of the power of God given to the sinner because God chooses to be gracious to the sinner. It is a radical alteration of the ultimate desires and affections of the human soul. God, in regeneration, removes the inclinations and wants of the unconverted heart, and he replaces them with holy preferences. In short, it's a transformation of the nature of a human being, and only God can do this. This transformation does not change human nature into something of a, another kind, but it alters it so that the sinner now wants something as much as they wanted sin. They want God himself. The chain leaves them rejoicing that they have been reconciled to God. No longer are they opposed to him. They now love him and all that is holy. Human nature still has the effects of sin working in it, but the operating system is new now that the sinner has been converted. And just like a computer, the operating system determines how the computer will function. These new desires and inclinations change the course of life, and the new believer is transformed. This is what happens 
When a person believes upon God, and it's what every sinner needs, and since no sinner can affect this kind of change in the core of their personhood, I say to you, it is truly a miracle. The Lord of all grace supersedes nature, and he performs a miracle. Now, the medium by which God has ordained to do this miraculous spiritual work is his word. His word. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. God uses his word to work in the human heart, affecting the change of desires and affections. Again, Jesus in John chapter 6 verse 44 and 45 stated, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, friend, listen carefully. It is this hearing and learning, not just an external and mental assent to the facts of the gospel, no. It is in every sense of the word supernatural. When God gives those facts life and power, and he does it inwardly within the deep recesses of a man's soul. Recently, a man who had been electrocuted and survived told me that before the horrific event of being electrocuted, he could tell you what happened in and to the body when electricity comes and enters it. But after it occurred and it really happened to him, he said it was so different knowing about electrocution and experiencing it. And dear friend, the same is true with conversion and the supernatural act of God making you his child. You can learn the facts about it, but it's an entirely different thing when God does it for you. God has ordained the act of preaching as the primary vehicle of declaring the gospel of his son. Now, that statement is crucial. In Paul's defense of his ministry found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 and following, Paul explains the importance of preaching. He was thankful that he did not baptize many of the Corinthian converts. He wanted all to know that baptism does not save, but the Lord uses the gospel message as the means of conviction, regeneration, faith, and repentance. The world may consider the message of the gospel foolish, but it is indeed the power of God to save. Here's what Paul said. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, in verse 21, Paul states explicitly that God is delighted to use preaching as the instrument of salvation. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Biblical preaching will always do the work of conviction. It's like a spotlight made to shine on a 
pitch-black room. It exposes all that is in the room, but hitherto unseen. There is no crevice or corner where the light does not illuminate, and there is no place where you can hide. This is one of the results of faithful preaching. Whether sinner or saint, the Word of God cuts and confronts all that is ungodly. There's no remedy without a diagnosis. There's no possibility of recovery without understanding the problem. And this is the purpose of preaching. It's to make a man or a woman accurately assess their situation so that they may seek the solution. I say this is the main reason people detest preaching and why it must be defended and protected from those who wish to remove it. They hate when the light reveals their sin, and they don't desire the gospel's answer to their sinfulness. I've known people who, having symptoms of illness, refused to go to the doctor, all because they feared the diagnosis. Sometimes it led to death, when it was curable all along if they had simply had gotten a diagnosis and treatment in time. Another reason for the demise of preaching in our times is a byproduct of what we just discussed. Many pastors and church leaders have turned the sermon into a talk in an attempt to be, quote, relevant to the unbelieving masses. Knowing that the sinner detests preaching, the minister develops a talk that is more ushering than alarming, more self-help rather than self-abasing. Many so-called sermons are do-it-yourself suggestions that you can hear on Dr. Feel or Oprah Winfrey, sermons which are not sermons but are Christianized versions of a TED Talk and definitely last no longer. And speaking about not lasting very long, I remember years ago sitting at a lunch table in a restaurant with a group of ministers. The discussion turned to sermon length. Many of them were on the more progressive side, if not pragmatic. I was the only one opposing the reduction of time in preaching. The other pastor's arguments rage from people's attention span is shorter than it used to be to television and movies have ruined people's capacity to listen to a monologue. Images and video have supplanted the brain's ability to focus on simple oratory. They need music, drama, humor to keep them riveted. Well, my answer to that is the same then as it is now. If we're talking about most of the preaching today, well, then that's probably true. So much preaching today cannot keep the listener's attention it may be factual, it may be biblical, but it doesn't have the power to hold a person's attention. Something is missing. I don't mean that the pastor has to be an orator. Being a polished orator may be a hindrance to preaching. There are plenty of men who are naturally gifted to mesmerize their audience when they speak. Some of these men end up in the ministry and have the reputation of being great preachers because they can mold and move the hearers and get the response they desire. But this is not true preaching, and I would say to you it's very dangerous. I'm not saying that natural abilities are in some way terrible. They're not. But a man that is so gifted must realize the danger of being tempted to mistake his natural ability as the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can use natural gifts, and he often does. He gives them. But so much of what is considered the work of the Spirit is not. 
It's simply a man with more than average talent appealing to the soul and the emotions of a person that elicits a response. And the Apostle Paul knew this and said that he guarded himself against it. Listen to what he said. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now, some take this to mean that Paul was not a very good speaker, lacking natural giftedness, but that's not what he meant at all. Rather, the apostle states that he purposely did not use rhetoric or oratorical skills when preaching. He refused to let his preaching rest on human wisdom or power or persuasion. No, no. The reason he determined this is stated in verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The inimitable preacher, often nicknamed the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, repeatedly warned about the dangers of an ornate eloquence. A gifted preacher himself with natural gifts and abilities that really make him one of a kind. He realized his own gift of oratory had to be curtailed. In the last half of ministry, he admitted to dialing back the ornateness of his speech. And if you read his sermons, you'll notice the difference that you find in his earlier sermons when you compare them to the latter sermons. The youthful Spurgeon was much more ornate than the more mature Spurgeon. In January 1873, in the Sword and Trial magazine, Spurgeon addressed the issue of ornate oratory and gifted tongues. Here's what he said. Who was ever convinced of sin by an oratorical flourish? What heart was led to Jesus and to joy and peace in believing by a fine passage resplendent with all the graces of diction? What chaff is to the wheat and dross to gold? That is the excellence of human speech to the simplicity of the word of God. Everywhere there is a cry for the gospel for men who will preach it in love for it, for ministers who will live it and inoculate others with its life. The church is growing sick of essayists and asks for men of God. She's weary of word spinners and pretenders to deep thought, and she cries for men full of the Holy Spirit who are lovers of the word and not speakers only. Soul winners will soon be in demand, and your genteel essayist will have to carry their dry goods to another market. Sane men do not need fiddlers while the lifeboat is being manned to save yonder perishing ones from the devouring deep. The intensely practical character of Christianity must be inferred from the life of its founder— Spurgeon goes on, in Jesus we see no display, no aiming at effect, nothing spoken or done to decorate or ornament 
the simplicity of his daily life. True, he was a prophet, mighty in words as well as in deeds, but his words were downright and direct, winged with a purpose, and never uttered for speaking's sake. Nobody ever looks at Jesus as an orator to be compared with Cicero, said Spurgeon, and yet he continues, Never man spake like this man. He was not of the schools. No graver's tool had passed over his eloquence. In his presence, Demosthenes is seen to be a statue carved with great skill and the very counterfeit of life. But Jesus is life itself, not art's sublimest facsimile of nature, but the living truth. End of quote. Well, our time together is almost gone. So let me conclude by saying that when men use either natural talent or speak in a manner that is neither interesting nor convicting, preaching suffers. It suffers at that moment, and therefore the church suffers, and it has led to a weak and anemic Christianity. It is no wonder preaching is being rejected and refused from within the church and without. In our next episode, we'll continue to share what has made true preaching almost extinct. This will be an extremely important episode. And again, I say, if you're not a preacher, please don't think that this next broadcast or any of these episodes has nothing to do or say to you. It's designed for you. It will help you to discern what God does as His Word is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email them to us at web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. On behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters Ministries, thank you for tuning in, and may the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.